0: Isn't it a delight to welcome Tom back to this conversation? So, let's go for round two. Thank you. you. Please, please join me in another moment of prayer. Gracious Father, when we take it upon ourselves to talk about Your Son, and especially to talk about His cross, We remind ourselves once more that this is very enormous, dangerous, difficult stuff and that we can so easily belittle it and think we've understood it when in fact it's a reality which has to knock us off our feet again and again. So Father, I just want to commit this time to you. I want to pray for your protection both for myself and for all my brothers and sisters here and for our loved ones, wherever they are, that as we focus our attention on the crucifixion of Jesus as the means of the kingdom, you will keep us safe and enable us to learn and grow and love as we are loved. So be with us and give us minds to understand, hearts to respond, wills to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with two little vignettes from Luke 9 and Mark 10. You don't need to look them up. They're well-known stories. In Luke 9, Jesus and his disciples are on their way. Uh, They're going off to Jerusalem, and fairly early on, there are some villages in the Samaritan area who oppose them. And you can tell at once what James and John have got in their heads. Jesus didn't call them the sons of thunder for nothing. James and John are trying to channel Elijah. They've just seen Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah on the mountain of transfiguration. But we know what happened when Elijah and Elisha were confronted by people. They did pretty devastating things. Elijah was a man of fire. He called down fire from heaven to destroy people who were threatening or opposing him. James and John faced with a village opposing them. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Jesus says, That's not the way we do stuff. They don't understand what do they think? They think the kingdom of God is going to come according to the model that they saw in their scriptures. This is how Elijah did it. You seem to be an Elijah sort of person only more so. Right, this is what we have to do. Won't that be amazing? We can just go through the whole countryside and anyone who gets in our way, we can just blast them out of the way. Jesus says, sorry. That's not how we do it. And then in Mark 10, the same pair, they don't give up This time it's a different agenda, and and the story comes in different versions, but the the one in Mark 10 is so sharp and clear. They come to Jesus and they say, in one version they get their mother to say it, but it's basically them saying it. um, (laughs) We want to sit at your right and your left when you come in your kingdom. What do they think? They think, we're going to Jerusalem, Jesus is going to be king. He will need a chief of staff. He will need a defense secretary or a foreign secretary or whatever it is, right and left. That's where we want to be. And, of course, what they're doing is upstaging Peter and Andrew because they're suspicious. There's another pair of brothers out there, and they may get in first. So, No, we're going to put our, put our claim in. You can just see these guys. They Talk about seeing what human nature is really like. It's all there in the Gospels. What does Jesus say? He says, listen. The rulers of this age do power one way. They, the rulers of this world do power by bossing and bullying and harrying people and making their presence felt. They do it one way. We're going to do it the other way. With us, the one who wants to be great must be your servant, and the one who wants to be first must be slave of all, because the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, see what's going on. This is Mark 10 35 to 45, with that climactic moment on verse 45. The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. And you know, many Christians in the Western tradition, Catholic and Protestant, liberal and conservative, have taken that last verse, Mark 10, 45, and said, oh, that's Mark's theory of the atonement. He gets it out of whether it's Isaiah or Daniel or a bit of both, and he's kind of put it into this conversation, but it doesn't really quite belong. That's just a a, a trivial dispute with James and John. That's absolute rubbish. The thing is coherent. You get the atonement theology inside the political theology. The cross is at the heart of Jesus' redefinition of what power really ought to be. We have so spiritualized the gospel within that 18th century framework that all we're interested in is there's a heaven a long way up there. I want to get there someday. Maybe it'll be a rapture or maybe whatever, but that's where we're going So we're really only interested in the fact that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many, and then we're off. No. This is the sharp point of how the kingdom of God comes on earth as in heaven. And it's the direct answer to James and John. As you see when you read Mark whole, what you get is, yes, Jesus does become king in Jerusalem, or at least just outside Jerusalem. And there is one at his right, and there is one at his left. Happily for James and John, it isn't them. (laughs) So the question which dominates right through is, Just how is the kingdom of God accomplished? What does it look like when God becomes king on earth as in heaven? And the four Gospels say from their four very different angles, I'm not wanting to flatten them out, they're quite different in their perspectives, but they all basically say what it looks like when God becomes king is Jesus on the cross with the words, King of the Jews, above his head. And if you read the Psalms, you know that the King of the Jews is the Lord of the whole world. The gospel does not have to be de-Judaized in order to be relevant to the rest of the world. In fact, if you do de-Judaize it, you will end up simply turning it into another form of a pagan religion which happens to have the name of Jesus attached to it. There's been too much of that. You see, Jesus lived in a world where there were different kingdom visions sloshing this way and that. Josephus says that there were at least three different philosophies, he calls them. There are the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes, and the Sadducees think that God helps those who help themselves. They're the aristocrats. They're the power brokers. They get out there and do stuff and they hope that God will be happy with what they're doing. And then you have the Essenes at the other end of the scale who believe that actually you just have to wait and God will do it all. So they go down to the desert and they say their prayers and they wait for God to act. Pharisees are sort of halfway in between. They're a pressure group and they say their prayers and they're waiting for God to act, but they want to do some acting as well. Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee. He wasn't sitting there in Jerusalem waiting for God to act. He was getting authority from the chief priests to go and get these heretical Christians and haul them off to prison. And so the question Jesus faces is, if you believe that God is becoming king in and through What you, Jesus, are called to do, what will it look like? And Jesus says at one point, the kingdom of God is breaking in and the men of violence are trying to get in on the act. They hear, ah, here's a kingdom of God movement, let's subvert it. Let's turn it into our kind of thing. Jesus has to use the language which, in his culture, some people were using in order to foment ordinary military religion, where, you know, what happens with ordinary military military revolution, sorry, it is a religion as well for them, Um, that that if you fight fire with fire, fire is always going to win, and that's not the point. And so, you see, the point is, again, we had this conversation yesterday, Jesus is a teacher, but it's not teaching in the sense of, we know what the syllabus is, and here's a rather special teacher doing it. We know that the real issue is, uh, what does it mean to live a good life, or how can I go to heaven, and now here's Jesus with a special spin on it. No, it's a whole new thing. Jesus is teaching about what God is doing, and what God is doing ultimately ends up on the cross, That's why, as I said, the Sermon on the Mount is not so much a list of virtues as an agenda. Jesus says, uh, if you're the light of the world, then how come you're putting a bucket over the light to stop it shining? If you're a city set on a hill, you can't be hid. And Jesus then talks about turning the other cheek and going the second mile and doing all that stuff. And as we read on in Matthew's Gospel, we see to our horror that the Sermon on the Mount is an agenda for Jesus himself. As he goes to the cross, weeping on, in Gethsemane, mourning over the failure of Jerusalem to believe, and as he is finally set on a hill, unable to be hid, having turned both cheeks and gone every second mile there was. And When you see the gospel within that frame, what you start to see is Jesus taking the rebuke, the shame, the reproach of this person, that person, the other person, onto himself. You don't go and touch lepers or let them touch you, but Jesus touches them. And instead of being infected with the leprosy, somehow his power and love transforms them. The woman who had the issue of blood, who creeps up in the crowd and dares to touch Jesus, She didn't want to be discovered because she was ritually unclean. She shouldn't have been pushing away through the crowd. If they'd known, they would have all realized that they were unclean. So she doesn't want to be seen. But instead of infecting Jesus with her uncleanness, his power infects her with new creation. And so on and so on. The the, the feastings with the outcasts and the sinners, as we said before, Uh, Here is Jesus. Oh, he's gone in to have lunch with a man who's a sinner. But then Jesus comes out, this is Zacchaeus in Luke 19, and says, Actually, he too is a son of Abraham. Look, listen, what's happened in his life? The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And in all of this, Jesus seems to be drawing the vocation that he finds in the Psalms, in Daniel, in Isaiah and Zechariah, onto himself, but configuring it in a new way. You know, many Christians know Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. I have argued at length in my book, Jesus and the Victory of God, that that passage was part of the central core of Jesus' own personal vocation. But you know how that passage was being read at the time? Some people read Isaiah 53, As though it was really about the Jewish martyrs who would suffer and somehow through their suffering God would do something new. You see that in the books of the Maccabees, especially 2nd Maccabees. Other people, on into the rabbinic tradition, were reading Isaiah 53 as a prophecy about a coming Messiah. But they turned it around so that the suffering was not what the Messiah himself suffered, but what the Messiah would inflict on the enemies of God's people. So you have those two different strands of how they were reading Isaiah 53. They couldn't make any other sense of it. It looks to me as though Jesus of Nazareth grasped that chapter and united those strands in a totally new way and read it as being about his own vocation. That somehow here was one, the servant, who was Israel but was standing over against Israel. The servant is a strange figure in that whole long poem, Isaiah 40 to 55. Jesus draws all these narratives into a new configuration and says, this is my vocation. That's why when Peter and the others say, ah, we've got it, you're the Messiah, and he says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man is going to be handed over and killed and on the third day raised, they just can't hear it. Because their agenda is, we think he's the Messiah, right, we're putting all our bets on this one, we're going to Jerusalem, and he's using this funny language about Daniel and the Son of Man and goodness knows what, and we assume that he means some of us may get hurt, some of us may get killed, but we're going to win. So they're going with him, of course they are, and they're jockeying for position when he becomes king. But actually he meant it. Again and again. Again. He said things which were richly metaphorical, which they took literally, and he said things which were literal, and they took them as metaphors. And guess what? The church goes on making the identical mistakes. Ask me about that afterwards if you want some examples. Um. And so, you see, we have come to the Gospels looking often for a theology of atonement. How does the mechanism of atonement work? Do we believe in this theory or that theory or the other theory? Can we put a tick by the boxes that say substitutionary atonement or whatever it is? And Actually, I want to tell you all those theories are true, but they are true as signposts to the much bigger reality. The theory is not the reality. You know, When Jesus wanted to teach his disciples what his death was all about, he didn't give them a theory. He gave them a meal, which is something you do. It's not just about ideas you hold in your head. Oh, the ideas are important. If you don't have the right ideas, you'll misinterpret the meal, and people sometimes do that. But the meal is something you participate in, something that changes you. Protestants are very worried about being changed. You know, that's sort of, um, no, other traditions do that. We, 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 are, we are a bit scared about that. But that's what a meal does. And Jesus says it, it's a Jesus meal. It's a me meal. It's a him meal because the atonement is such a huge reality that it is about this entire story of Israel, which is the focal point of the entire story of creation, reaching its climax in a blaze of hidden glory. In John's Gospel, Jesus does this and this and that and that, and John says, shows his glory, reveals his glory, and those are signs leading up to the greatest sign of all, when he is lifted up, exalted, which is when he's crucified. Somehow we have to get our heads around that. And only when we do that, and then share in that... Somebody asked yesterday, what are the ways in which we can get to know Jesus uh, along with reading the Bible and praying? The two other obvious ones staring us in the face in Scripture are one, the sacraments, and two, the faces of the poor. Um, Matthew 25 and Matthew 26. When you minister, in as much as you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. Learning, this is the Mother Teresa thing, isn't it? Learning to meet Jesus in the faces of the poor. And Mother Teresa herself used to say that that's because she would meet Jesus in the Eucharist and then meet him um, on the street. You need scripture and prayer. You need sacrament and service. So the atonement is the great multi-layered story which brings everything into focus and opens up to embrace the world. This is Israel's story coming into focus. This is the world's story coming into focus. Dare we say this is God's story coming into focus. So why does it need to be like this? Because as well, all the way through from Genesis 3, there is another darker story going on which is the story of this mysterious, unpleasant, nasty thing we call evil, which seems to gather strength and become a force and a power, all of itself, quite aside from individual wrongdoings, though they're caught up in it as well, goodness knows. And so we see from Genesis 3 onwards, even that early period when the imagination of human hearts was only wickedness continually, and so God sends the flood, and even then they don't get it. And so it goes on after there, and it reaches a climax in in, in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel is the place where human arrogance knows that it's supposed to be creating a city. Notice that's what Cain goes and does after he's expelled. You know, he's, He goes off and he founds a city. Isn't that interesting? There's a sort of human sense that we know we're supposed to be about creating community. And yet, because we are radically fallen and rebellious, we turn these communities into arrogant statements of our own power and prestige. And in order to heal the world after the fall of Babel, God calls a nomad, Abraham, a man of no fixed abode, and says, in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And only at the end of the day, at the very end of the day, do we get the city, the New Jerusalem, which is both a city and a garden. Our culture oscillates between the city and the garden, between the go-getting rationalistic stuff and the romantic escapist stuff. Somehow the Bible holds those two together. There's about ten lectures waiting to be given on the basis of the last three sentences that I just said there. Um, But... Hopefully you can follow that. It's all in the text. I'm not making this up. Um, So evil gathers strength and evil seen from the biblical point of view routinely is about the stuff that those pagan nations do. They worship idols and so their humanness deconstructs. Idolatry is the root of all evil in scripture. And so Not only their humanness deconstructs, but they then deconstruct everybody else's humanness as well when you behave according as idolaters behave. But then the awful story that runs right through the Old Testament as well is, as I said before, that the problem is that the people who are the bearers of the solution are themselves also carriers of the problem. Lionel Blue, uh, a great cheerful liberal rabbi in the British scene over the last 50 years. I once heard him on the radio saying, the thing is, Jews are just like everybody else only more so. And <laughs> that, 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 that there's, a, there's a very typical rabbinic sort of thing to say but, but yes, everything is kind of enlarged. It's exactly what Paul says in Romans 5, that the law came in in order that the trespass might be filled out so that what was going on in the world at large became magnified in the rebellion even of beloved Israel, even of the people of God. And the reason why Paul writes Romans 9 to 11 is to say even that was not outside the purposes of God. That when God, remember what I said before, God called humans to be the stewards of creation so that he might himself become the steward of creation by becoming human. Now, get part two. God called Israel to be the means of the world's redemption so that he might himself become the world's redeemer by becoming Israel in person. That's the meaning of messiahship. The whole of the story is there before you. And yes, the Old Testament is full of some very surprising, difficult, often unpleasant, embarrassing things. It seems to me that though this isn't an answer, to a kind of a sneering philosophical objection to the book of, say, Joshua or Judges. Nevertheless, it has something to do with God's purpose that when humankind goes wrong, God does not say, oh, well, we'll scrap the idea of there being humans who operate my purposes in the world. No, God is faithful even if we are all faithless. So he calls a human family to put the thing right, knowing that that human family are themselves fallen children of fallen Adam. And then when Israel goes wrong, what does God do? According to the Western church, God says, okay, we'll forget that plan and do something different. So we'll just look back at the Old Testament from time to time, but it's not really our book anymore. No. No. The whole point is, when Israel goes wrong, God takes that wrongness into himself, and the faithful act of the Messiah, his obedience unto the death of the cross, is where it was all going from Genesis 12 all the way through. And this is why the Gospels are such complex books because as well as telling the story of Israel, the story of the world, the story of Adam, all in the story of Jesus, they are also telling the story of evil, of how evil does stuff. The plots, the whisperings, the the people shrieking in the synagogues, the disciples who first don't get it and then run away and then betray him and so on. As a Catholic priest friend of mine said, the one point when the entire college of Apostles did something unanimously was when they all forsook him and fled. You know, and that, that, that's not just, you know, kind of a cheap shot. It's, it's actually because, yes, everyone lets him down or conspires against him. And you feel, if you read the story this way, you feel the darkness closing in from quite early on. And you realize that it was the darkness which God had said, this is where I have to come in person to take the full force on myself. You begin to see why the little theories of atonement are all just pinpricks pointing forwards. There is something much bigger and more dangerous and more scary going on because you all know and I know just how nasty evil is. It's not romantic, it's not dramatic, it's very unpleasant and it does horrible stuff. And it gathers itself into a bundle and it goes rolling down the road and it squashes people in the way. And the Gospels are partly the story of how it all gathered itself into one big bundle, whether it's the sneering Pharisees, or the shrieking demoniacs, or the sophisticated Sadducees, or the couldn't care less Romans. They are all instantiating different bits of the story of evil. And it was the greatest empire the world had ever known and the greatest religion the world had ever known that got together to put the Son of God on the cross. That's how powerful evil is. The darkness of the world and Israel's failure to be the light of the world. Hence the challenge. Hence Jesus going around warning people, if you don't come my way, the way of peace, then you are courting disaster. And he was not, you know, when in Luke 13, they come and tell him about the people who Pilate had killed in the temple, and he says, yeah, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Let me tell you, he was not talking about frying in hell after you die. He went on to say, what about those people upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and it crushed them? Were they worse sinners than everyone else? No, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What's he saying? Unless you turn from your flight into nationalist, militarist dreams of world domination by your own physical power, your James and John type dreams, unless you give up that lot, then Roman swords in the temple and falling masonry in Jerusalem will do for you. Luke's gospel brings this out particularly, but it's actually there in each of the gospels. And that challenge, that warning, reaches a climax in Mark 13, the so-called little apocalypse, where Jesus says the whole of this temple thing is all going to come down. That was actually implicit in what he did. His his action in the temple was not a clean-up operation. It was not that he was objecting to commercialism. It was like Jeremiah smashing his pot. It was saying this whole system is under God's judgment. Why? Why? Well, because Israel as a whole had used the temple, the place where heaven and earth met, no longer as a symbol of its own divine vocation to be the people through whom the blessing of God would come to the world, but as a symbol of its own security to be the people who would sneer at the rest of the world because we were the people of light and they were the people of darkness. Isn't it a good thing that the church never does that today? Uh, I'm sorry, I know America is not always a land where irony is appreciated, but I think you heard what I was saying. (laughs) I I did once appear on the Stephen Colbert Report, so I do know there are some ironic moments in American (laughs) culture right now. But you see, all through, and this is part of our understanding of how Jesus is who he is and was who he was, All through, Jesus had been behaving as if he were the temple in person. That's an odd thing to say. The temple is where heaven and earth meet. The temple is where, if you've been cleansed from a disease, you go and offer the sacrifice, and then the priest gives you the seal that you're okay now, and so on. And Jesus goes about doing stuff, which means you can have, by coming to him, what you would normally get by going to the temple. It's as though... I were to approach someone on the street in Denver and offer to issue them with a passport or a driving license. What do you mean? You've got to go to the government department to get one of those. The official stamp. And Jesus says, my child your sins are forgiven. And you see we read that as oh he thinks he is this great almighty God from way upstairs sort of looking down and forgiving somebody. They hear it as he is offering us here in person what you would normally get in the temple. He goes on doing stuff like that. So when he finally comes to Jerusalem, the place simply isn't big enough for both of them, him and the temple together. And That's why in Luke 19, that spectacular scene, Jesus tells a story about a king who goes away, gives his servants jobs to do, and then comes back. And we in the church have regularly read that as about the second coming. It isn't. And please, when I say this, some people say, oh, Tom Wright doesn't believe in the second coming watch my lips, read surprised by, of course I believe in the second coming. It's right across the epistles and acts, revelation, hugely, hugely important. It just isn't what that story is about. That story is about Israel's God who has left the temple, the end of Ezekiel, and has promised to come back and is finally doing so. What does it look like? It looks like a young prophet in tears riding a donkey. So he comes to Jerusalem and he says, if only you had known the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from you, because the days will come when your enemies will leave not one stone upon another. And here's the, the thing, because you did not know the time of your visitation, the Hemerates episkepsios in Greek, that's, that's divine visit. In other words, this is what it looks like when God comes back and you didn't recognize it. You missed the moment. And so... The worst is going to occur, and it did. So Jesus' two great actions in that last week, his temple action and then the Last Supper, they together define what is going on. And if you want to follow Jesus, then you have to follow him all the way to those moments in Jerusalem, even though it's scary. Or, to look at it the other way, everything that you do by way of implementing his kingdom work in your communities here and now, and we were hearing wonderful things about that yesterday, everything that is going on there is utterly dependent upon the fact that it is in him that heaven and earth come together. And then by his spirit that, astonishingly, heaven and earth come together in us. That's what Paul is all about. Well, not all about, but a lot about. And that in this supper, this meal, somehow we are invited in a way which defies explanation. We are invited to share in this extraordinary, unique, one-off, unrepeatable event. It makes the sense it makes because it was all about Passover. Passover. Oh, yes, it may have looked, as Philip was saying yesterday, as though, and, and was thinking about Mother Teresa, as though Jesus was going around quite unintentionally and just doing something here and then being guided to do something there and whatever. But actually, he chose Passover quite deliberately to go to Jerusalem and do what had to be done. This was very specific, very intentional, very prayerfully thought out. Because his death would mean what it meant, precisely as the new Passover moment. That's why Passover and the Exodus story are so soaked into the whole of early Christianity. Because Jesus has come as Messiah to win the messianic victory, the great battle, which the Psalms speak about. Except he has redefined the battle. The battle will no longer be about calling down fire from heaven. It will be about the Son of Man giving his life as a ransom for many. That's a redefinition of power. It is not an abandonment of power. It is a redefinition of power. Think about that. Likewise, he has redefined the Jewish martyr theology. Those martyrs who went to their death believing that somehow, in ways that they couldn't explain, somehow the fact that they were suffering might just mean that Israel would turn the corner and come out okay the other side. Jesus has again redefined that. And you can see this quite sharply. In all the Jewish martyr literature, what do the martyrs do as they're being killed? They call down God's curses on the people who are killing them. What does Jesus do as he goes to his death? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That is one of the most radical, innovatory sayings in the whole of the Gospels. This, then, is what it looks like. And I come back again and again to Isaiah 52 and 53. Just think. I mean, go home and read those those chapters. Isaiah 52, verse... Seven and following, how lovely on the mountains! We used to sing it. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of the one who brings peace, who announces good news, who says to Zion, "Your God reigns." What does it mean to say "Your God reigns"? It's not just a vague, abstract statement. I used to play that funny game called squash with a good friend when I was in Oxford. It's long years since I've done it now. I'd probably have a heart attack if I tried. But um, we were quite evenly matched, and if on a, he was a theologian too, and if on occasion he would hit. A ball that went just a millimeter above the bar and dropped dead where I couldn't reach it, he would lean back against the wall and say, ah, there is a God. And I would think, excuse me, what does that mean about when I do a good shot, whatever. Um, But When you say your God, what has happened to make you say your God reigns? And the answer in Isaiah is Babylon is defeated, you are going home, and God is coming back to stay. Your watchmen lift up their voices and shout for joy, because eye to eye they see Yahweh returning to Zion. And then immediately we go into what we call the fourth servant song. Who would have thought that he was the arm of the Lord? That he was, as it were, Yahweh in person. The prophet says the Lord has bared his holy arm. He's rolled up his sleeves to come and get his feet dirty and his hands pierced on the cross. And that whole fourth servant song unfolds not as an abstract theory of atonement but as the means by which evil does its worst and is exhausted and defeated so that with the cry of it is accomplished in John 19 it is finished, it's done and that is both that evil has been radically defeated and that the work of new creation has in principle been completed as well because the echo is actually of Genesis 1 and 2 that God finished all his work that he had done. This great act of love, John says, John 13, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. One of, again, the radical innovations, oh, the love of God, is very powerful as a theme in much of the Old Testament. It's a wonderful theme. His mercies are new every morning, says Lamentations. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, says God in Isaiah. It's there. But it's concentrated, it's focused in quite a new way. So that when in Galatians, Paul says, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. We are so used to hearing that as Christians, we don't Realize that actually, that was a radically new thing to say, and they went on saying it. It is all about the love of God. Coming to the place where evil did its worst, in order to take its full force upon himself, in order to exhaust his power, so that there could then be the beginning of new creation. Do You see how it works? John, I've said this often enough, some of you may have heard it before, but it bears repetition. In John's gospel, we have this great sequence of the seven signs leading up to the cross. And John does nothing by accident. John 1 gives us this new genesis. In the beginning was the word. He's wanting us to think of genesis, 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 because he's wanting to think about creation and new creation. And on the seventh day of the week, sorry, on the sixth day of the week, the Friday, What happens in Genesis? Humans are created in the image of God. What happens in John on the Friday? Pontius Pilate brings Jesus out in the purple robe and the crown of thorns, and he says, behold the man. This is the true human. This is the revelation of the glory of God. This is how the image works, the love of God reflected powerfully into his world. And on the seventh day, God rests in the tomb. And then John 20 verse one, and John repeats it later just in case we didn't get the message. On the first day of the week, very early, came Mary Magdalene to the tomb. What's he saying? This is the eighth day. This is the beginning of new creation. You know, People talk about the resurrection often in Easter sermons as though, oh well, Jesus died and he's now been raised, he's gone to heaven. what the resurrection means is we'll... No, no, no. Going to heaven is never mentioned in the resurrection accounts. That's not the point. Okay, Jesus says, I'm ascending to my... That's, that's a different point. It's not about us going to heaven. The point is, with the resurrection, new creation can be launched at last because the power that has stopped it coming into being, the power of radical evil, whether you want to call it Satan or sin or whatever, or roll it all together, that power has been defeated. It has been taken, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb, and we start to see what new creation looks like. John has done this wonderfully with these vignettes of Mary, of Thomas, and then of Peter by the shore. Uh, the, 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 other, the other Gospels tell it in their own way. Here is in Luke, uh, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, we had thought that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But he can't have been because he died on the cross. And everybody knows that a crucified Messiah is a failed Messiah. And Jesus says, slow of heart, foolish ones, to believe all that the prophets had said. And he goes back, as I've tried to do in a microcosm, to Genesis, to Deuteronomy, to the Exodus, to, to the prophets, to the Psalms no doubt to beloved Isaiah and Daniel and their hearts burn within them as he opens the scriptures and then he comes to the house and their eyes are opened in the breaking of the bread and it's a fitting time to have a baby crying, sign of new life. Nobody in the early church reading Luke 24 could have failed to see what's going on. This is how new creation starts to spread and work, that our hearts are burning within us as we listen to the scriptures being expounded. This is not the New Testament yet. This is the Old Testament. And then our eyes are open to behold him in the breaking of the bread. And then our feet are energized to go off running to tell others and to do whatever is necessary. And Luke says that Jesus, when he met them again in the upper room, he says, this is how it's going to be, that repentance and forgiveness of sins are to be announced to all the world, beginning from Jerusalem. What does that mean? We in the West have shrunk that. We think that repentance and forgiveness of sins means that I've been a naughty boy, so I need to say sorry, so that then God will forgive me and I'll go to heaven. Yeah, well, okay, that's fine. That's part of it. That's the little local micro bit. My friends, the point is this. There is a different way to be human, and it isn't the James and John way, it is the way of repentance and forgiveness of sins. You know, they just tried it in South Africa, just the last 20 years, thank God for Desmond Tutu. Repentance and forgiveness of sins as something that would happen to transform a society, and okay, it's still a painful and dangerous place. Wouldn't it be good if we could do it, we Brits in Northern Ireland? Wouldn't it be good if even a little bit of that, please, God, could happen in the Middle East? Repentance and forgiveness of sins being announced and lived out. And the only way it makes sense in the world is if the people who are talking about it are doing it. That's why the unity of the church radically matters. That's why we cannot just be content with this individualized Christianity that we in the West have got so powerfully in our DNA. Yeah, every one of us, personally, privately, needs to do business with God. Don't be fooled by people who say that Tom Wright simply gives you an ecclesiology without a soteriology. And if you don't know what that phrase means, good, just keep it like that. point is we need to see where we are within the larger story in order that we can find who we truly are. Don't play off the individual and the corporate against one another. The church and the person need one another. You hear what I'm saying? So Luke 24 has this agenda of repentance and forgiveness of sins as a way of life for the church to live out. And were they good at living it out? No. Read the Acts of the Apostles. They got it wrong. But God worked through them and they had to repent themselves and learn. Matthew 28, as I said, has this agenda that Jesus' all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I used to preach about that a lot when I was in Durham. And I would say, you know, most of us are quite happy to think of Jesus having all authority in heaven. Most of us have hardly begun to imagine what it would look like to suppose that he already has all authority on earth. Because if it's his way of doing power that matters... Then what happens to the James and Johns who want to call down fire from heaven to blast their opponents to smithereens? God help us, we've hardly begun to learn what the gospel is about. But then coming back to John 20 and 21, Mary Magdalene sees Jesus, doesn't recognize him. A great many people in our culture see Jesus and don't recognize him because they've heard the word Jesus, and it goes with this thing called the Christianity that they gave up when they were young, because it was too rigid this way, or it was too angry that way, or whatever. And like that story we heard yesterday, actually, there may be this quiet Jesus who is standing in the middle of the room and beckoning. And Mary thinks he's the gardener. Maybe he can help. Have you taken him away? And then Jesus says, and there's a textual problem, but it's, it's pretty certain, I think. He says, Miriam. He doesn't say Mary, Maria, the Greek name. He says, Miriam, the Aramaic name, the name her parents used to call her, her real name. The risen Jesus calls us to be who we are really called to be. Something about resurrection, which is extraordinary. You know, when we look forward to the resurrection, People say, oh, will I get the same body back? Will my nose still be the same shape? Will my eyes still be brown or blue? Whatever." That's not the point. According to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, if you are in Christ, indwelt by the Spirit, then you are at the moment just a shadow of your future self. There is a real you that is even more like you than you dare imagine. And one day, that's the person you'll... And... Here is the glory of inaugurated eschatology. By baptism and faith you are already that new person and you are to live into that new person until the day when it is fulfilled. And Mary begins to see that through her tears. And then it's Thomas's turn. Our world is full of Thomas's as well. I'm not going to believe unless I can touch and see. I want scientific evidence. I want hard proof. And you know, there are some Christians today who hear that challenge and they say, oh no, that's, that's so unspiritual. We ought just to be able to believe on faith. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says to Thomas, okay, be my guest. Here are my hands. Here's my side. Interestingly, we are not told that Thomas actually took him up on the invitation. He says, my Lord and my God. He takes a flying leap into the first full statement that anyone makes of who Jesus is in John's Gospel. And then there's Peter, John 21. Many of you are ministers, many of you are preachers, many of you are pastors, and every single one of you knows, as I know, what it means to be Peter. That is to say, to be called to a high calling and to let Jesus down badly. We've all done it and we all then kind of navigate and negotiate how do I go forwards from there after this huge mistake that I've made this sin that I've committed whatever it is John 21 is the place we need to go back to John is very clever he's a very sophisticated writer it's it's apparently artless. it's simple because John has woven the complexity in. They're going fishing. Jesus stands on the shore and there is a charcoal fire. The last time we've had a charcoal fire in John was when, yes, at the high priest's hall, it's the same words, the only time the word occurs in the Bible, anthracia, the charcoal fire, which is there when Peter is denying Jesus. And then you know how a smell takes you straight back to wherever it was when we know what's coming? Three times Jesus asks Peter a question. Now, there's a little tricky bit of Greek. You've been very patient sitting comfortably. Just hold on for a minute because actually the question is odd. Jesus says, Simon, son of John, agapece me. Do you love me with agape, with that love which is the total self giving love that has already been redefined around Jesus? Simon, son of God, it's John, agape me. Do you have that agape? And, Peter can't say that word. He says, Yes, Lord, you know I'm your friend. That's that's as far as he can get. I think it's quite deliberate in John. It's not accidental. Yes, Lord, you know I'm your friend. What do we expect Jesus to say when we read that story? Put yourself in a position of second naivety, of reading the story for the first time. We expect Jesus to say, well, Peter, you really messed up, didn't you? I'm actually very disappointed in you. Um, We're going to have to have at least a six-month rehab course to get you back on track and uh, put you under a mentor and we'll do this and we'll do that. He says, feed my lambs. You see what's going on? The word of forgiveness... Takes the form of the word of fresh commission. Isn't that extraordinary? So Jesus says again, Simon, son of John, Agape me. Do you love me? That total, utter self-giving love. And Peter still can't say it. Ni curiosi, oida you know that I'm your friend. Yeah, here I am. Please, I can't get there, but here I am. And Jesus says, Tend my sheep. And then he says. In the Greek, Simon, son of John, me. Simon, son of John, are you my friend? John says, Peter was upset because on this third time he said, are you my friend? As though Jesus is kind of, oh, well, if that's the best we can do. I think what Jesus is saying is, okay, Peter, if that's where you are, that's where we'll start. That's where we'll start. And then he says, now, feed my sheep. Then, Peter turns and sees John following them, or the beloved disciple, whoever it is. Lord, what about this man? Oh, I missed out a bit. Jesus says, look, when you were young, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. When you were old, someone else will dress you and take you where you don't want to go to tell Peter how he is going to die. And then he says, follow me. This is following Jesus. And then they see this other disciple and Peter says Lord what about him he's doing the James and John thing and he can't get it out of the you know, what about him uh, how's this going to work Jesus says if it is my will that he remain until I come what is that to you you follow me that's what it's all about so what does it look like what does it look like I could tell many stories my time is long since up I'm sorry I've completely lost track of time we're going to have some Q&A in a minute but sh- let me just say a few things here I was privileged for seven years as Bishop of Durham to work with the Peters of this world. The people who weren't giving themselves airs, the people who had learned humility, and the people who were at the bottom of the pile and yet were worshipping Jesus and could see that all around them was new creation needing to happen. And so they didn't come with great theories, most of them hadn't studied, most of them had never heard of liberation theology, but they knew as they worshiped Jesus, as they prayed, as they read scripture, as they met to break bread, they knew that outside was a world which needed to have the victory of Jesus on the cross and the new creation which follows from it instantiated. Two vignettes I will give you. One in South Shields, old mining community decimated by the complete collapse of the old industries in the northeast of England, where gradually, one by one, on the high street, the shops all shut because there wasn't enough money for people to buy anything. So then the bank shut. So all the sort of symbols of a thriving civic life are going. And some people from a couple of the local, two or three of the local churches got together and they went to the bank and they said, look, uh, we don't even want to rent this, but if you're not using this building, can we just use it to have a literacy training center and a credit union and an old people's day center and a mother's and toddler's place and a health center and a this and a that? Said, sure, fine, okay, we'll help you do that. And they set up a sign of hope on that street just extraordinary, and say, this was not a big program imposed from above, this was the kingdom of God happening from below, giving hope to people who had forgotten that there could be such a thing as hope, or another one just on the outskirts of Durham where there was an old school that was surplus to the government's requirements. And so some people from the church had this little glimmer of an idea, maybe, just maybe, and they transformed that school into a place where people would come who were, uh, I don't even know what the politically correct language is to use anymore, severely mentally or physically handicapped, disabled, whatever language you want to use. People who had serious difficulties and problems with their minds and their bodies. And they not only gave them things to do during the day so that they weren't just slumped on a sofa sitting in a home somewhere as though they weren't really humans. They gave them the sort of things to do which were creative and beautiful. And young men with severe disabilities were taught how to repair furniture. The first time I went into there, I nearly wept. Here are these people who have broken themselves but who are mending things, who are fixing things. Does that or does that not have the stamp of Jesus on it? It's just an amazing image. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like. And then one of my, I said there would be two, this is the third of my two. Um, one One of my favorite parishes in that diocese was a parish where for whatever reason there was quite a significant number of people with Down syndrome in the congregation. Many congregations, wouldn't have known what to do if there was one person with Down syndrome, let alone 20 or 30. These Down syndrome people, some of them still children, some of them as old as maybe 35, were woven into the fabric of that congregation and to see their faces coming up for communion. Jesus said, unless you become like little children, and there they were, that's how it was. And then they were the ones who were taught how to give out coffee at the back and how to do all this. To see these people who the society as a whole would have wanted to push to the sides, becoming celebrated central members. Wonderful. My friends, people sometimes mistranslate that verse in John, where Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And they think, that it means my kingdom is a long way away and one day we'll go there and then it'll be totally other. No. What Jesus said in the Greek is my kingdom is not ek to kosmututu. My kingdom is not from this world. The kingdom does not grow from this world. From this world we get James and John. From this world we get Peter denying. From this world we get people who want to call down fire from heaven to destroy their opponents. No, but my kingdom is for this world, for this world. And how does it become for this world? By those who have glimpsed that in Jesus, evil has been defeated. By those who have glimpsed that in his resurrection, new creation has been launched. By those who have discovered that there is this power called the Holy Spirit, which is available to all who ask. Not so that we can have fun spiritual experiences. You may or may not, that's not the point. But so that we can be little temples planted around the world, around our communities so that God's light can shine through these angled mirrors and so that the worship of creation can come back to serve him. Amen. This is what I believe simply Jesus is all about. I could talk much longer, but my time is well <laughs> up. Let's thank Can we just, Beautiful. should we go straight into Q&A? Yeah, and then. What did you so want to simple. do? What were you just getting ready to do? I, you just I did was, this. I was just going to say a prayer, because this is. Gracious Father, I've said much, and there's much that could have been said. I pray that you will take anything that's been foolish, or unworthy, or not relevant, and just ditch it somewhere. Mm-hmm. But plant the seeds which have been sown in the good soil of hearts, and minds, and lives, and churches. And Father, enable us all so to see and know and love Jesus that somehow that new creation which was one in his death and resurrection may become a reality in this place and in every place. We pray it in his name. Amen.